we spend so much time talking about, you know, if one person in the audience is changed by this or if we're able to do it. What if we looked at the thing that was killing the vast majority, the number one preventable death that happens in our country, you know, is addiction and substance use disorder. Maybe we could use the arts to actually change that very narrative. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, I'll be speaking with theater director and creator of The Recovery Project, Sean Daniels. Sean has a distinguished theatrical resume with several impressive credits to his name. He co-founded the company Dad's Garage, which is now a cornerstone of Atlanta's theatrical scene, and then he went on to lead Merrimack Repertory Theater in Massachusetts. He also spent four years as Associate Artistic Director at Actors Theatre of Louisville, where he oversaw the sadly now-defunct Humana Festival of New American Plays and directed many of its world premieres over five years. The credit that brings him the greatest pride, however, is just a little more recent. Person in long-term recovery. You see, for almost two decades, as he charted his remarkable artistic path, he was also increasingly hobbled by his addiction to alcohol. And, as is so common for people with substance abuse disorders... It took him several tries before he was finally able to manage his disease. Sean detailed his painful, absurd, and often surprisingly hilarious journey to sobriety in his play The White Chip, which enjoyed a successful off-Broadway run in 2019. Now, over a decade into his sobriety, he has added another notable credit to his resume. Advocate. After a widely lauded stint as artistic director of Arizona Theatre Company, Sean recently became the associate director of Florida Studio Theatre in Sarasota. At FST, not only will he head the theatre's new play development program, but he will also work as the inaugural director of his brainchild, The Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is an initiative working to heal the stigma of addiction and recovery through the development of new plays theater education programs, and outreach. Sean spoke to me from his office at FST. In his play The White Chip, he charts with agonizing detail how the play's protagonist, Stephen, sidesteps any possible intervention by a number of well-meaning people, including colleagues, lovers, and bosses. So I started by asking him, given what he knows now, what he thinks those people could have done differently to help him. One of the reasons I wanted to start the recovery project, and I think one of the reasons why Florida Studio Theater was interested in doing it, is that every organization has had people who struggle. You know, it affects, you know, 10% of the population is in active addiction at any given moment. So the chances of them working um, in your local arts organization, I feel like is pretty significant. What happens there, and I think elsewhere, is that honestly, nobody knows what to do. Nobody is trained in this. Nobody has mental health 
first aid training in terms of how to operate. We all understand sexual harassment. We're trained in it. I've never started a job without having some type of video about sexual harassment training. Recently, I started, I was a guest director at Cincinnati Playhouse and they made me do a a short video on active shooter training, what to do if someone were to enter the building while firing. But nowhere has ever done anything on mental health in terms of how do you deal with it? How do you, what are, what do you look, how do you start the conversations? Should you identify it? What, are, what does HR allow you to do if somebody feels like they're a little out of it? And so I, you know, I think at the time I was angry, but what I realize now is that they just didn't know and I didn't know how to ask for help. And the stigma of addiction is, is so strong in our country that even people in recovery sometimes think like, just, you know, come on, just please don't show up drunk to this meeting. This is important. You know, that we real as opposed to being like, please don't show up with cancer to this meeting. This is important. You know, like we would never do it to other diseases. And so, you know, I think the the thing that I want to do is figure out how do we train our institutions to be as aware and sensitive to all the information because addiction is is like any disease early detection conversation dealing with it at an earlier point you'd rather have stage 1 than stage 4 cancer mm. same thing with addiction if you can catch it early and talk about it but i think it's so ingrained in all of us that first of all you're kind of like you're not fun if you're not, you know, using or drinking, that especially nobody wants to talk about it. After I got sober, so many people were like, oh my God, I'm so glad you're sober. I've been sober for seven years. And part of me just wanted to be like, where the F were you? Like, I really oh, felt like I was the only person. So in people the were in the theater. closet about their sobriety. Oh yeah, everybody. I mean, it's a, it's a controversial idea in the Alcoholics Anonymous world that they say that anonymity is the spiritual foundation of the program. And I think that exists because for a long time, you wouldn't go get help if you thought you were going to be outed by going to a meeting, right? And that may be still true today in a lot of fields. You know, where theater claims to be the most empathetic liberal group of people on the planet, and we all know that is not true, and that it may still even impact your ability to get jobs in our field. So I think I understand why anonymity has been so built into it because you ha- otherwise you wouldn't show up, right? You wouldn't go to a church basement of somewhere you never knew if you thought you were going to get called out. But I think what happens because of that is nobody knows who else has been there. And when you start to look at the numbers of addiction in our country and, you know, in the United States someone dies from substance use disorder every three minutes, Mm. right? So like it is huge. More people died in 2020 from overdoses than died of AIDS at the height of the AIDS crisis. I mean, it is tremendous in terms of the toll it's taking. And yet we're all very, we're very quiet about it because the shame that comes along with it is on everyone's part, right? So I think I didn't know how to ask for help. And they had no idea how to offer it. And so what I see that is now is not a failing on anybody's part back then, but just a realization that nobody in our field has any idea how that they should do it. The thing that I've also realized in researching it is that there are systems in place to help people who are struggling in almost every other major field. Lawyers have one. Doctors have one. 
airline pilots have one, nurses have one, any field where it feels like it is necessary to get help and to do it in a very private way that doesn't ruin your life. You know, lawyers have this great line that you call, you can say I'm struggling, or you can say I was in court with someone that was struggling. And this line will put you in touch with someone who will come talk to you to help you figure out what next steps are. We don't have anything like that in you know the arts in fact in the arts we have maybe you should keep working because you'll lose your health insurance if you don't get six more weeks in the next 10 weeks right so we're, we're we're almost at the other end of it so i think that part of my frustration at the beginning has really fueled me figuring out what is it in our field needs to change to make it easier for people when they're they're struggling well, we're definitely going to talk about that in Systemic Reinvention and the Recovery Project, but I, I want to focus on you and your relationship to your own creativity, because certainly in the popular imagination, and I know you've talked about this, is the romantic notion of the creative alcoholic. And also, certainly, I think since alcohol is a disinhibitor, it can open, I think, different paths to creativity that perhaps a sober person might not have. I don't know. But so I'm curious about how you had to reintroduce yourself to your creative self once you were sober. What were the challenges there and the discoveries? It's such a great question because I feel like for so many people in the arts, there's like this myth that's built in that somehow it costs you something to be an artist that there's a, a toll that is taken and that's just your deal with the devil to be able to do what it is that you do and it's late nights and it's you know big personalities and tempers and we all have this kind of self-destructive narrative built into it um, i don't know the numbers but there's the vast majority of nobel prize winners in literature are alcoholics, right? I mean, and, and of course, we're just like, oh my God, if only I could be like, you know, Ernest Hemingway, or I could, you know, any of these people, and these people that put a shotgun in their mouth right, and exactly. blew their head off, right? But <laughs> it doesn't we, end well. We, that's right. But it's, which I think is the, the story for, for so many of us that like, yes, it, it um, disinhibits you. And yes, you're more charming. And oh my God, I, I remember this TCG conference where I, I purchased all these booze and I opened an open bar in my talkback session because I just thought they were dry. And the next day it was packed. You know, I got a directing gig out of it. I got so like the problem is that so much of that is is true or is so baked into our field as creatives. And so for me, I really thought like, oh my God, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be anything. If I, if I have to get sober, I'm going to be boring. People aren't going to want to hang out with me. I had a, I had a, a person I was dating who I said that to, and they were like, Oh my God, do you have any idea how boring you are now? Like you, you just, <laughs> you just sit every day at the bar from like five to nine. You, you think it's going to get more boring than this. So it was, you know, it was really having to figure out how to be an artist without that and then the you know the tough truth of it is once you're on the other side once you've had a couple of years you look back and you actually see how it got in the way of your art that there is you know i would always say like well it's not taking a toll on my work and then you you know once i was sober for a couple years i look back and i was like of course it was the energy that it takes the the rigor that it takes the focus you, you know to be in the rehearsal room and to be in touch with everybody and to be making the choices that need and late nights of rewrites and all the, so much of that was really put aside. And I think the work wasn't, you know, the work was good for a while and then it started to get in the way. 
in terms of what it is. So I think for now, I, I realized that I couldn't do the work that I do and I, I couldn't, um, you know, navigate the personalities and the shows that I do and, and the amount of work that is taken if I was drinking. So how how did you decide to create this project? What what was the, sp- the spark of inspiration and how did you develop and how did you find your partner in Florida Studio Theater? I uh, had lunch with Richard Hopkins, who's the artistic director here. And uh, we were talking for a while and finally he was he was like, what is it? What is it you just want to do? What, like, what do you like? If you could do anything, what would you do? Like, stop complaining. Just tell me, like, what is the end? And I said, if I could do any two things, I would rebuild the Humana Festival somewhere else, and I would figure out how to stop artists from overdosing. If I could do, if I could do any two things, I would do that. And then he called a couple of weeks later and said, "Okay, let's do it." And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, my God. And I had been putting together, you know, when I... Wait, was he uh, saying yes to both? He was saying yes to both. <gasps> you know, he was, no. saying, he was saying, let's do it. And then so when someone calls you on your, you know, your 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 claimed goal in life that I think you have to take them up on it. And, you know, during the pandemic, when we were having, like everybody, you start to think about what is it that you... You know, what would you do if our field doesn't return? I started to think about, you know, how to do things in the recovery world and should I be putting more time into that? And I had a great friend who said, you don't leave a field after 30 years to do something else. You got to figure out what the intersection is of those two things. And so I began to put together like, okay, how do arts and recovery come together? And then, and then this was the spark of it all. There was this great study that was done about how do we ch- how do national narratives change how how do we actually think differently over time and they studied gay marriage and they studied how did barack obama when he ran for president be against gay marriage and now 15 20 years later you can't imagine a democrat running for city council and saying the things that he said so like how how do actually we change those things and the answer was the arts the answer was what you see on TV and the movies and the plays and the books you read and the songs you listen to, that that influences vastly how we think about things. You know, I mean, Ellen comes out and everybody thinks her career is over. And now it's it's uh, luckily boring to have a lesbian talk show host in the afternoon. You know, it, it it's that Queer Eye for the Straight Guy is fetishized and then now it's not even a thing anymore you know what i mean so it's like it you watch how the arts really change how it is and so i began to think well if we have the power to do that and we spend so much time talking about you know if one person in the audience is changed by this or if we're able to do it what if we looked at the thing that was killing the vast majority, the number one preventable death that happens in our country, you know, is addiction and substance use disorder. Maybe we could use the arts to actually change that very narrative. How do you think the recovery project is going to affect the nation or your community in a way that existing arts have not addressed the crisis? So a couple of things. One, we want to support artists who are in recovery, talking about recovery or not talking about it, you know, in the same way that we finally came around in our field, hopefully, 
to the idea of supporting artists of color when they're not talking about their trauma, uh, but supporting them all the time. I want to figure out like, how do we, how do we get more shows out there? You know, plays, movies, books that talk about the thousands of different ways that recovery can happen and all the real success stories. I think, you know, if you've watched TV, you, all you know is that you go to a very sad church basement where people will hold coffee and everyone will say their name back to you. And it's just like, it's so far from the truth. First of all, those meetings are hilarious because <laughs> there are people telling horror stories and the room cackles. I mean, for a, for a field that loves dark humor, you, you, you would fall in love with all of these characters that if you put in a movie, people would say that's too much. So how do we just change? How do we get the stigma out there? How do we talk about the, you know, the numbers in terms of what it is? And then I think also as the arts, we have to start putting together some training. We have to figure out like, you know, I really want to launch what's called a warm line, which is similar to what other fields have. If you're struggling, there's a phone number you can call and you're, they'll put you in touch with somebody who's in recovery uh, to talk to you. Or Does, Do the unions yeah. have that? Does Actors' Equity have anything like that? They don't. I met with Actors' Equity, and they're game to help because it is about safety for the actors. You can, you know, there, there are different services out there, and uh, of course, but I just think there's no one place. And our field is so... Uh, specific in terms of what its needs are and where it is. I mean, I tried to explain to other people in the recovery field, like you're an artist, which means that you're, if you're successful, but not on Broadway, you're probably not in the town that you live in. So you don't have your doctors, your friends, your dentist, you're in artist housing and you're struggling and you don't know where to do. I mean, it's, and uh, uh, what are you going to, you can't go away for a month in the middle of a show. The co- contract is 11 weeks. The contract is eight weeks. You know, it's, we're really set up to just encourage you to kind of suck it up and get through it and try to fix it when you get home. And so I, I think, you know, I want to put together something like, uh, you know, we've been talking about launching a, a warm line, like how could, what, what's a, sim- a simple place that you could call and the services that they could provide you? We've been partnering with other organizations to figure out what if you don't have insurance? How do you call and get the help and, you know, everything from like just talking to you on the phone to being able to uh, get you to uh, science-based recovery or an AA meeting or to get you into outpatient or to get you into inpatient. I mean, like you should have all those options the same way you would any other disease. I mean, addiction, especially alcoholism, was declared a disease in the late 50s, but yet we don't treat it at all. I mean, listen, we, I always like to say, like, we're so great about peanuts. We've really figured out how to <laughs> ask everybody if they have a peanut allergy, how to uh, make sure that peanuts aren't around those people, to uh, you, you fill out a form when you check in artist housing, do you have a peanut allergy? And, I, and that's you should do all that because it can really be serious if you're not. But nothing exists in terms of you know, this issue that affects 40 million Americans a year is just not treated in the same way. So I want to be a part of changing that. But I think part of it is just the, the stigma. I mean, part of it is deep down inside, people don't know what to do. And if somebody, we really think that it's a moral failing if somebody is abusing anything about what it is and we judge them for it and we're just frustrated with them and we're angry with them. So I think that's 
and we would never do that with any other disease, but it's just so in, that stigma is ingrained and it's ingrained in the person that's suffering also. You know, they don't, they try to hide it. They don't want to talk about it really only till it gets to rock bottom. And like we said earlier, with any disease, if, if you wait till stage four to treat it, everybody's chances are less as opposed to talking about it earlier. So I think figuring out all the different ways to break down the stigma is going to be our goal. What do you think artists in particular who struggle with addiction require that perhaps professionals in non-creative fields might not need? Is, do, is there a way to approach creative people with addictions differently? Is there, um, I'm curious if you can talk about that. We do know that artists suffer from depression at higher levels than the average person and you know part of uh, often can be what attracts you to the field is that it, you know you you get to be part of the circus and you finally fit in in the level of misfits and so um, that can play a big role in what attracts people to it but i also think maybe less about the field though well, i'm sorry maybe less about the art form and more about the field, you know, the art form does require, especially for performers, a tremendous amount. I mean, it's the same thing that gets rock and rollers. You got to give it your all at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday night. And as you said, you're often on the road away from your family and community. That's right. You're in a, in a weird place in artist housing, you know, you do an eight shows a week where you got to go out and sing and you're tired and your voices hurts and you're on vocal rest and, uh, it's really primed for asking you to just get through it. And we also know as a field that, you know, the show must go on. You have to figure out there are more people than there are opportunities. And so there's always a sense of like, don't screw this up. Keep it going. You may not work again. All this is built into figuring out for people like, great, what do I have to do to get through the next section. And then the worst of it is, especially when it comes to actors, if you don't keep working, you lose your insurance. So who would ever take time off to go to rehab? I mean, if you want to have a baby, you got to figure out exactly how to work up until the last possible second and somehow have some work ready to go when the, you know, five or six months later, I mean, it's, it's near impossible for any actor to stay in it if unless they're consistently working. So I think the field is really built to punish you if you want to take time off, if you want to take some mental health, if you just say like, I'm really struggling, I'm going to take six months off, you, you have to have insurance through a partner uh, somewhere else, you have to be independently wealthy, you, you know, it's so much is built into the way that we operate that lets addiction thrive, that really sets it up as a great place to come in. And just even think about this. If you're at an organization and you're struggling, first of all, they could fire you and get somebody right away. And you know that. And the other thing is, even if you get through it, you're gone in seven weeks, eight weeks, and then they don't see you again. You know, the, you really become like you're, you're tossed aside and then maybe they just don't bring you back. So you know, I think for me, I, I just watch that happen. And I think if we're going to talk a game about, you know, that, that we care about artists and we're there for artists, then I think you have to say like, great, they're dying. Like, what do we do next? Like, how do we figure out what are the steps that we should be taking? What does it feel like now to be 
so out of the closet, actually, to to have your name attached to to the recovery project. Oh my god! The other day, somebody said to me, they um, they were like, "Well, you're the you're the leader in our field in dealing with this." And I was like, oh, "What what what did you do? What are you talking about? Like that doesn't? I used to." I used to take naps on the 10 minute breaks <laughs> because I would go in the bathroom because right in the bathroom, like just people look for feet and they leave. And I would take like a six minute nap and then I would wake up and have a drink before going back to rehearsal. And so the idea that I would be the leader in our field, I don't even know if that's true, but it was so, it just felt like a full 180 moment of, oh my God, I'm on the, I'm on the other end of it. And I, and I will say that the thing that also has spurred this is, you know, we did the white chip off-Broadway in 2019. And I probably get contact that I'd say on average about a person a week since then. So for about three and a half years of somebody saying, I have a brother, uncle, aunt, you know, who's in the performing arts, I'm struggling. Can you, you know, I I heard about your play, which is amazing, right? Because we all know plays, especially off-Broadway plays, it's not a movie. It's not a TV show. It wasn't seen by millions of people. If it went great, it was seen by thousands in a one-month period. And so the fact that I think the need is so much... You know, American Theater did this article about the Recovery Project, and uh, Alexis Houck, the, art, the author of it, said she was floored because they published the article and what happens to me happened to her within minutes of the article going out. Someone reached out to her and said, uh, you know, I need help. I have somebody that I'm working with. Uh, what do I do? Like, like people are so desperate for help that they don't know. And suddenly they hear something, they see something. And I think that shows you how little information is out there that a, that a play that played off Broadway or an article on the online version of American theater, people are within minutes writing in to say, oh my God, I read this, please help me in this very specific situation. And I think that just shows they have nowhere else to go. They don't know where to go. They feel so alone. And we're in this field that's all about the other and, and empathy. And there's a vast majority of people who are just struggling day to day because they feel like they're alone and nobody else is there for them. And then finally, what creative projects of yours are you really looking forward to? The White Chip is coming back to New York. The lovely uh, and talented uh, Annalie Ashford is producing a a reading of it in hopes that that attracts uh, more producers to be able to put together another run off Broadway. It was supposed to, you know, like this is the story of so many shows. It had this great run in New York and it was about to come back in the summer of 2020, and that that did not happen. It's also supposed to tour Scotland um, next year with the, this is crazy, but in Scotland, the government pays for theater that it feels like should be out and touring. I don't understand it. Those words don't make sense to me, but I've been told several times that that is actually the case. If you'd like to read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash art restart. And if your podcast platform has that little subscribe or follow button, hey, won't you just click on it? we got great episodes coming up, and I don't want you to miss them. If you know an artist changemaker in your neck of the woods you'd like me to profile, just drop me a line. You can find me on Instagram at PCTalenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you so much for listening. 